My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and this morning we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The text this morning will be from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. It's found on page 10 of your order of service there in the ESV translation. Of course, you're welcome to use your own Bibles, your own smartphones. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, there should be one in the chair in front of you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 845. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that one as our gift to you. We'll be glad to give that to you. So Easter week is finally here. I love Easter. I love just all the build-up to Easter. I love all the stuff that happens throughout this time of Easter. And you know, being a Presbyterian, there is kind of this pressure, though, in our denomination by some that, you know, we're supposed to celebrate the birth and resurrection of Jesus every Sunday, not just Christmas and Easter. And so we shouldn't emphasize those days more than any others. And and that mentality can kind of cause us to disparage Christmas, to disparage Easter, to, to not make it a big deal. And I admit I was part of that tribe for a little while, and so I, I know what I'm talking about. But you know, here's kind of what occurred to me, is that we should celebrate our marriages every day. If you have a good marriage, you should celebrate that every day, and I hope you do. But if you have that mentality, let me tell you something. You better remember your anniversary. <laughs> Just saying. Because it's important to every once in a while, especially annually, to set apart special times when you remember details and you really dig in together. And so we're going to do that over the next week of really dig into all that our redemption entails. We're going to do that today with the triumphal entry. We're going to do it Thursday night at 630 with the crucifixion at our Monday Thursday service. You're going to want to come to that, bring a friend to that. And then we're going to do it Easter morning next Sunday with regular worship at 8.30 and 11. Invite a friend. This is the time of year when people are open to invitations to church. So that person who just came to your mind right now that you're scared to talk to, I, I have one too, I know. Invite them. You never know what the Lord can do, especially this time of year when just people expect these things. So here we are on Palm Sunday. What's going on in John 12 before we get to this passage? So the so-called triumphal entry is going to happen here. And right before this, Jesus has been at this even smaller town called Bethany, where this guy named Lazarus lived, where this guy named Lazarus died, and where Jesus raised that man back to life. And now with this big crowd following him because he raised Lazarus from the grave and they're like, you would be, wow, this is amazing. Now he's heading into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And that's right where our text picks up. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. 
Now, this is God's Word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have revealed Yourself to us, that we might know Your truth, that we might know You, that we should see ourselves as we are, and then see Jesus in all of His glory and beauty as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We pray, Lord, that even this day, Your Gospel would be manifest in our hearts that we would taste and see that you are good in Jesus. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this is a pretty familiar event for those of us in church world, right? People are thronging around Jesus. They weigh palm branches. They lay down their cloaks on the road. They cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what I want to do is I want to look at it kind of through new eyes this morning. Eyes that helps us see beyond what's happening on the surface to really what's going on here. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Missing the grace of a servant, we flock to the spectacle of the popular. We're going to see that Jesus doesn't come as the Savior we want, but as the Savior we need. So let's jump right in with the Savior that we want. So it's the beginning of the Passover feast. It's a hugely important celebration in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is just packed to the gills with people at this point. I know if you've looked into this at all, there's like liberal commentators out there that say there's like 17 people, the triumphal entry. Okay, they're wrong. They're making it up. Most scholars estimate that first century Jerusalem can swell to over a million people. We actually have records from Roman record keeping where they would purposely send in way more troops to help this occupied region in the month before Passover because so many people would come. Since it's such a big deal, let's remind ourselves real quick, what is Passover? Remember the Prince of Egypt or maybe a previous generation, remember Charlton Heston, remember the 10 plagues on Egypt, right? Okay, so the last one is the death of the firstborn sons. But what God instructed his people to do was to kill a lamb, take its blood, wipe it over the entrance to your house, and that angel of death will pass over your house, saving your firstborn son. And so the Lord redeemed the firstborn sons of Israel that night and did not do so for the firstborn sons of Egypt. It finally broke the will and resolve of Pharaoh, and he let God's people go shortly thereafter. And so Passover became, in subsequent years, the annual recognition of the entire Exodus event. It was one of the biggest holidays of their year. And so John tells us here that people, this throng of people, they're gathered here for Passover. And this huge crowd, John says, is now pouring out of Jerusalem, excited to see this Jesus guy coming. They're so excited they rip palm branches off trees and start waving them around in excitement that Jesus is coming. And in verse 13, the text tells us literally they keep on shouting. They won't let up. This isn't just a one time. Let's see what he says. They just are so excited. They keep on shouting. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is one of those churchy words, isn't it? We don't really understand what it means, we think. It basically means God saves. Whereas for the kids' translation on page 11 in verse 13, we said God's going to save us. This is, a, this is a proclamation that God is going to do something amazing. They're shouting praise to Jesus. They're waving palm branches. And why are they doing this? Where does all this excitement come from? What's the big deal? And I love how John is so honest that he gives us a very earthy explanation of exactly what's happening. Look with me at verse 18. Why is this happening? It says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him 
was that they'd heard he'd done this sign. That's why. Jesus had gone viral by raising Lazarus from the dead. And don't miss that. This huge crowd thronging out of Jerusalem to come see him. They're not there to worship Jesus as Lord. They're not there to to celebrate God has come to give us forgiveness of our sins. They're not there for any of that. They were there because of the power he displayed over death, the spectacle, the miracle. They wanted to be part of Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem as a conqueror, conqueror, because they assumed Jesus was riding in to conquer the Romans, to get rid of them. And don't discount that. So often when we read the scriptures like this, we, we kind of forget what's actually happening at the time. The, the, the state of Israel, the, the area of Palestine was under occupation by invaders. The Romans were their overlords. They did not have freedom. They were the superpower of the day suppressing Israel. And so all the people at this point that are flocking to Jesus are thinking, this is the guy that can beat Rome. It's a huge compliment to Jesus' power. They knew Rome could kill people. They'd all seen it. Rome was very good at it. But they couldn't bring people back from the grave. But Jesus could. He had real power, and they wanted that Jesus. They wanted to be there when Jesus walked right up like Will Smith, the pilot, and just slapped him. Get out of Jerusalem. They wanted to be there when the Roman legion showed up and he went all Star Wars lightning and just zapped him. They wanted to be there when Jesus did that. That's the Messiah they wanted. That's what they were looking for. Now, am I taking liberties here? Am I just being creative? Is this in the text, actually? Or is this my modern cynicism being put back onto them? No. And here's how we know this. First time I learned this years and years ago, it floored me. This is not the first time that Jerusalem had done a triumphal entry. In fact, a hundred years prior to this, the Syrians were the problem not Rome. And unlike Rome, which just wanted to expand and tax, Syria wanted to destroy different cultures. They thought they were the superior culture. They had to destroy everybody else. So being Jewish was no good. The Syrians wanted to Hellenize Palestine, which is a big fancy word meaning to make more Greek-like. They were contentious. They were brutal, brutal, bloodthirsty overlords. And finally, after doing so many horrible things, they finally said, here's what we're going to do to break this culture. Here's what we're going to do. They had a big old whole hog barbecue, not just in the temple in Jerusalem, in the actual holy of holies on the altar. They sacrificed a pig, showing them God has abandoned you. Nothing happens to us trying to break their culture. Well, this large backwoods family outside Jerusalem called the Maccabees. They'd been out hunting all morning. They were watching the game when the news flash came on in the second quarter about the big old pig thing in the temple. And that was just more than they could stand. So they got the rifles and their second cousins, and they whooped the Syrians, kicked them out, defeated them. And for the first time since like ever, Israel was independent. Judas Maccabeus, the head of the family, the victor, selected a gorgeous, magnificent war horse. And he rode into Jerusalem. You know what the people did? They ripped palm branches off trees. They were so excited. Waved them around like crazy. Anybody want to guess what they shouted? 
Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Now here we are in Jesus' time, less than 100 years later, the people of Jerusalem are thinking, this guy is like the Maccabees. To a thronging populace longing to be free from Rome, Jesus was changed they could believe in. This is the guy. He's going to make Israel great again. See, just like us, they really wanted Jesus to fix their circumstances, to fix their life, fix my stuff, and I'll be okay, Jesus. But Jesus has said over and over again in the gospel, your circumstances aren't the problem. Your problems aren't your problem. The problem is you. You need to be reborn throughout the gospel of John, he says. You need to be reborn by my power that's bigger than your circumstances. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to fix the main problem, which is not Rome The problem is that humans are wallowing under the weight and curse of sin. That God's wrath and curse is upon us because of sin. That we are at war with the three times holy God. Jesus rides in as a man of peace to end that war, not as a conqueror. Because he's going to come in and die to pay the penalty for that curse. He'll go on a cross to absorb the wrath for that sin. And so these people pouring out of Jerusalem are not necessarily worshipers. They're looking for the latest life hack to retweet, and they think Jesus is it. They want him to fix their difficulties, make their life easier, give us a new king under this Messiah instead of Rome. That's the Savior we want. But the real Jesus is the Savior that we need. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. It says this, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now John doesn't cover it in his account. The account that Marty read earlier in the Gospel of Mark does cover it. The other Gospels do as well. It shows us that Jesus planned out this whole donkey thing. It didn't just happen to be there. He planned it out. He wanted to waltz in fulfilling this prophecy specifically. So as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, they've got the donkey with them already. There's already a crowd following him from Bethany because of Lazarus. There's this crowd coming out of Jerusalem because they heard about Lazarus, and they're all yelling, Hosanna. It's in the midst of these two crowds when the palm branches and everything happened that Jesus then sits on the donkey in order to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah quoted here in verse 15. And in doing so, Jesus makes two statements by by doing this. First, He proclaims by this action that he is a worthy Savior. Here's what I mean by that. Every five or six years, it's always about this time of year because publicists are good at what they do, somebody writes a book that basically says, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. The church just made it up. I was was listening to the most recent clown uh, who wrote a book like this. He he was on NPR, which is my first mistake. Anyway, so I was listening to NPR, and this guy's on there just going on and on about how Jesus never talked about this. And I kept thinking, man, I can quote you like so many places in the Gospels where he like, you know, does. So, I mean, the only way you can do that is you have to take take a sharpie and be like, nope, nope, nope. And, And you get like the Thomas Jefferson Gospel there. But this is one of those places we're fine. Let's, let, even if you say that, it's not true. But if you say that, this is one of the places where Jesus implicitly proclaims his deity. 
per Zechariah 9.9, he goes riding into Jerusalem as the king of Israel, the one coming in the name of the Lord. And they're praising him and they're saying all this stuff. And this is the first time in the accounts of the gospel that Jesus doesn't stop their praise. Throughout the four gospels, when stuff happens, people start trying to praise him or worship him. He tells people, keep this a secret. Don't tell anybody. He won't let people worship him. And here he does not stop their public praise and adoration. See, he's not some obscure carpenter sneaking in to Jerusalem under the cover of darkness. His entry was a grand public event and spectacle, and that ensures that his coming crucifixion will be public and known as well. In the other gospel accounts, at this point, the religious leaders rebuke Jesus and they tell him to rebuke his disciples and others for calling him God. Jesus utters back this famous, if you've been around church, well, he utters back a famous response in Luke 19.40. He says, he says about the people praising him, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus Christ says, if these people stop proclaiming my worth, my value, and my deity, the very rocks, creation itself would cry out how worthy I am. He's either God or he's a narcissistic megalomaniac. You may not believe he's God, but it is not honest to say that he didn't say he was. Jesus claims to be a Savior worthy of our praise. The second thing he does here by riding in on this donkey, the second statement he shouts out basically is that he is a peacemaking savior. He's riding in on a donkey. He shows what kind of king he's going to be. Judas Maccabeus got a war horse. Choosing to ride in on a donkey is not very impressive. You don't, you don't put that on a water bottle, right? People don't have that as a sticker on the back of their truck, right? Molan Labe, and there's a donkey. Yeah, yeah. People don't, you don't have that. He's signifying peace because the crowd, just like us, doesn't recognize they're already at war. Jesus rides in to end the war with his own blood. Because again, Rome's not the real enemy. Like all people, they were born in sin and rebellion already, and they're at war with their creator. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the prince of peace because by his blood, by his atoning death for sin, he will end the war and bring peace with God. And as we mentioned before, at this point, there's another crowd following him. He's got people coming out. There's a crowd behind him. Look with me at verse 17. It says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So Jesus has raised Lazarus from the, gra- from the grave. It's spread like wildfire because of these people. Notice that they keep bearing witness. They keep talking about, we saw him raise Lazarus from the grave. They had been there when he raised Lazarus and they wouldn't stop talking about it. They made sure it went viral. Everybody had seen the TikTok of Lazarus coming out of the grave. It was like, It was amazing. See, John here presents us a picture of just this very raucous scene. Jerusalem kept on shouting, Hosanna, blessed to see the crowd falling, kept on shouting about Lazarus. And I love how in the other gospel accounts they let us know it is at this moment, in the midst of all of this adoration and praise, the highlight of his ministry, this is the moment when Jesus stops and weeps over Jerusalem. 
he knows he will be rejected by this city. Once he makes his mission clear, the city that shouts Hosanna now in a few short days will shout crucify him. When he doesn't do what they expect, all these people who made him go viral will cancel him. But Jesus does it anyway. Jesus rides into Jerusalem because he's God in the flesh. God who is gracious and compassionate. And so he rides straight into pain and rejection in order to redeem his people. Do you know this compassionate God? The God who endures pain and death to set you free. You can. Don't feel bad if you don't. Even Jesus' handpicked inner circle didn't know him this way. Those who had given their life to follow Jesus for three years, those who had been with him, all his teaching, all the miracles, even all the stuff not recorded in the Gospels. Verse 16 tells us that they don't have a clue what in the world's happening. Not at first, but then something changed. Look at verse 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I love how casually John mentions the glorification of Jesus. It's a big fancy church word that means he's basically came back to life with a perfect body. Note that John is writing this account within the lifetimes of people who were there, who could contradict him. He'd be like, nah, I was there. That did not happen that way. And John feels no need to prove the resurrection. He just states it as a settled fact. Once it happened, then they were changed. And that settled fact makes all the difference. In the light of the resurrection, the disciples understood that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem as the Passover sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The reality that Passover looked forward to is happening right in their very presence. It's not a coincidence that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Passover week. Passover had always looked forward to the coming one, the ultimate Lamb whose blood would save all people from death. Remember, if you've been around church world, remember what John the Baptist does the very first time he sees Jesus? What does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that man to that crowd saying that sentence, he may as well have said, look, Passover is right there. Because Jesus is the Savior we need. In the midst of all the fanfare, the disciples don't get it, but in light of the resurrection, they do. Jesus came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do we understand that about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, really? Is he a great teacher? Is he a good moral leader? Or because of the resurrection, do we see that Jesus is so much more? Teaching was not his main goal. In fact, one time someone came up to him and said, hey, good teacher, let me ask you a question. He goes, hup. Why do you call me good? Not not a good teacher. Modeling a godly life, not Jesus' main purpose. Jesus came to live the life we should have lived and to offer up that perfection to God in our place. 
He came to die the death we deserved for our lack of perfection and to offer that up to God in our place so we could be changed from rebels into family. That's what the disciples understand after the resurrection, that he's the Savior we need. But there's another response here as well, not of disciples, but of the religious leaders. And they don't mean to, but the religious leaders actually proclaim that Jesus is the Savior for the world. Look with me at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They're so upset that they're exaggerating a little bit. This group was so bothered by Jesus. They were supposed to keep the peace and make everybody happy. Rome gave them a little bit of power and a lot of bit of wealth to do so, and Jesus is messing it all up. If you want to make people in positions of authority upset, mess with their power and mess with their money, and they will show you who they really are. Right before this passage, if you want to look it up, this is almost funny. These religious leaders had decided to kill Lazarus because he was giving Jesus too much credibility. Which, by the way, if they made up the whole Lazarus thing, why were they going to kill a guy who was already dead? Just, just saying. And you see, it was bad enough for Jesus to teach against the religious leaders. He had to go and back up his truth claims with miracles. See, if Jesus were the hip, chill, peace dude preaching love and tolerance and diversity and you were all great, God loves you just as you are, didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings... These guys would have had no problem with that Jesus. But Jesus actually made like truth claims. He calls the religious leaders snakes, tombs, hypocrites in public. See, like most people then and now, they wanted to tame Jesus. The Jesus who confirms that they're okay. But the Jesus who calls sin, sin, and then points to God's holiness, and then has the unmitigated gall to proclaim that he is the only exclusive way to God, and there are no others. Cultural leaders then and now, we, 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 they don't like that, Jesus. You have to appreciate the irony here that when these Pharisees say the whole world is following after him, they mean all the different kinds of Jewish people from across the Roman Empire in town for Passover. But writing a generation later, John changes their words and so that they confess that Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. Who is Jesus for you? You know, I became a Christian when I was 15. And the church I grew up in preached the gospel. But as I, as I moved forward as a Christian, I kept just having this assumption, and I bet I'm not alone, that the gospel was something that happened to me back then. And I really didn't understand like, how to appropriate all this Jesus and grace stuff today. I was like, yeah, I, mean, I, I put the jersey on by grace back then. I'm on the team. I'm good. So I guess I got to make sure I'm like playing up to my skill level so coaches still like me and keep me on the team, right? So I'm saved by grace, but I kind of live by my own performance, maybe. I don't know. They didn't really talk about it. That's very similar, if you'll allow me to stretch a metaphor, to proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord then, and not seeing such a big deal about him now. What about for you? Who's Jesus today? For those of you here who call yourself Christians, you know, there's a sense 
in which every day we who know him, well, we should be shouting with our hearts, Hosanna, because of what he has done and what he is doing. But the cares of life, ongoing issues, scary words like recession, gas prices, Putin. Have we begun to wonder if, if that's the, really the Jesus we want? Or are there other things in life that we would rather get settled first? Is Jesus really that great? Is he that worthy? Let's own together, dear Christians in the room, let's, let's own the reality that our love for him can grow stale. And let's take this week to refocus on the miracle. The miracle that Jesus, knowing exactly what kind of people we really are, still willingly entered Jerusalem to be mocked, to be tortured, to be killed, to set us free from sin and death. Now, what wondrous love is this? What a worthy Savior. This week, dive in to Him. And for non-Christians who are here, maybe, maybe you, you would like to know how to talk to some non-Christians in your life. You know, the Bible doesn't promise that Jesus will fix your life or that He'll come in and make all your questions and problems go away. That's not anywhere in Scripture. If you just believe hard enough, and I'm so sorry if that simplistic message has hurt you, but I can tell you this, that Jesus can give you resources for real life that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die voluntarily to heal us from our sin, from our pain, from our brokenness. In his death, he absorbs all those things, and in his resurrection, he heals all those things, and then he offers to you himself. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord, you're put in union with him. So what is true of him is true of you. The New Testament says you're actually hidden in Christ. And in him, you don't always have the answers, but you have him. If you want him, even now, invite him in. Place your faith and trust in him, and he will ride into your life as the Prince of Peace and end the war between you and God. And for all of us, let's rejoice in the Savior that we have, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a good place to start. We do something a little weird. Please stand. I know we're Presbyterians, but we're going to get through this together. <laughs> Put this slide up, please. Let's shout this together to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, you are the great creator of all things, and we bless you. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings who was slain for us that you could purchase with your blood men from every tribe, language, nation, and family. You are he who came in the fullness of time to fulfill the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And so we praise you and say, Hosanna, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And we pray, Lord, that this week by your spirit, you would sear into our hearts more and more the reality of what Jesus has done for us, that we would see our sin. And instead of wallowing in selfish guilt, we would immediately see Jesus in his sacrificial beauty and rejoice that Christ is risen, that Christ will come again. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves as we are and then to see your gospel and that we would be changed. 
We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.